Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. I shall tell you about our guest before we get rolling here. Barry Schwartz was the official documenting photographer for the Shroud of Turin Research Project. That was a team that conducted the first in-depth scientific examination of the Shroud, and that was back in 1978. He's also the founder, editor, publisher of the internationally recognized Shroud of Turin website, the oldest, largest, and most extensive Shroud resource on the Internet today. In 2009, he founded the Shroud of Turin Education and Research Association, to which he has donated the website and his extensive Shroud photographic collection as well. And he was also featured on one of our Beyond Belief episodes that you can find at beyondbelief.com. Barry, welcome back. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, George, and it's great to be back with you. For, for the few people who might not know what the Shroud of Turin is and where it's kept, why don't you tell us about it? Okay, well, first of all, the Shroud of Turin uh, is called the Shroud of Turin because it's kept in Turin, Italy. It's a 14-and-a-half-foot-long, 3-and-a-half-foot-wide sheet of linen clo- uh, cloth that bears the front and back image, ventral and dorsal, full head-to-toe, front and back, of a crucified, scourged, speared man that was also crowned with a crown of thorns, and the bloodstains that are on it that indicate these wounds are all forensically accurate, and many people, of course, believe that it is the burial shroud of Jesus of Nazareth. How long have we known about the shroud? Well, uh, the shroud's history goes back certainly to about the uh, mid-1300s, without a a break in its uh, chain of custody. Uh, Prior to that, There are gaps in its history, which, of course, gives the skeptics all the ammunition they need to challenge it. But uh, there was a cloth that was, uh, well, first of all, we can go all the way back to the Gospels, where Mm -hmm. it's mentioned in the Gospels that there was a burial shroud uh, that was provided by Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, People always say, well, why wasn't the image on the shroud mentioned in the Gospels? And that's very simple. it's forbidden by Jewish law to have any depictions of God, and so it also has blood on it, which is required by Jewish law to be buried. So nobody could come running out of the tomb saying, look what we found, without putting themselves at great risk. Uh, for a few hundred years, I'm sure it was just hidden away to keep it away from iconoclasts and those who would destroy it, or even the people who might have uh, protected it. Um, in the 4th and 5th centuries, we uh, well, the first image we see that looks like the Man of the Shrouds about 285 A.D. in the Comitia Catacombs in Rome. In the 4th and 5th century, the iconography of the Orthodox Church started making paintings that look exactly like the Man on the Shroud with many uh, identifying marks that are very consistent with what's on the Shroud itself. Uh, there was then uh, another gap in its history. There was a cloth that was in Constantinople, uh, or Edessa, and that was known as the Mandilion, which means, in Greek, not made by human hands, or in other words, not an artwork. Uh, That disappeared, I think, in about 1204, when the um, uh, Crusaders came and sacked the city, and this Mandilion cloth had been walled up in the wall of the city to, to hide it and protect it. It disappeared, never to be seen there again, and about 150 years later, it shows up in the hands of a French crusader in the 1300s. 
and from there its history is unbroken until today. So that's sort of a brief overview of its history. A uh, lot more detail on Shroud.com, of course. So. And, and Barry, what came first? The depictions of Jesus that we have all known over the years with, you know, the robe, the beard, the long hair. Mm-hmm. Did that come first, or was it the the Shroud that came first in terms of people's identification with what Jesus may or may not have looked like? Well, I think that probably the earliest solid depictions were would have, would have been in the 4th and 5th century in the Orthodox Church, and uh, there's a very famous uh, artwork called the Christ Pantocrator that looks very much like the Man of the Shroud. And most people that have studied this believe that that image, that Christ Pantocrator artwork, was based itself on the Shroud. <clears throat> so I would have to say the Shroud came first. Now, of course, Jesus was tortured before he was put to death. Uh, they put, you know, thorns around his head. Uh, they speared him in the side when he was on the cross. Uh, they hammered him in the legs and in his uh, palms of his hand. Does the shroud depict some of those wound uh, areas? Actually, George, it depicts all of them, as you describe. And interestingly enough, we talk about a crown of thorns. We've looked at artworks throughout uh, religious art history, and you'll see the uh, crown of thorns typically depicted as a kind of a circlet uh, around the head. Uh, Interestingly enough, that comes from the first century where artists would depict people of great stature with a laurel wreath around their head. And so the crown of thorns, at least in artworks, was always shown as kind of a circular wreath around the head. But the man of the shroud has bloodstains covering his entire scalp, and that implies that they didn't take the time to... uh, weave a pretty crown for this man they were this mm-hmm. criminal ostensibly that they were about to execute they just took a nasty thorn bush and smashed it on his head so the motif of the circlet comes from the artworks of the first century but the reality at least of what we see on the shroud is the entire scalp is covered with wounds uh implying that they probably just smashed the whole thorn bush down onto his head uh, causing wounds across the entire scalp. Can you tell how tall the individual was? Well, we can, but not as precisely as we'd like. First of all, you have to remember it's a woven cloth, and so it can be stretched in any direction, and we had right. to be very careful in 78 uh, not to stretch it and distort the image on it. We had to smooth it out without pulling too tight and stretching the image. Uh, the other thing about the Shroud's image is, unlike an artwork that has a defined edge, like an artwork or a properly focused photograph, the edge of the image of the Shroud just fades out. So it's hard to know exactly where to start and end your measurements. And because of that, and the fact that the cloth can change its shape based just on the relative humidity in which it's stored by as much as a few centimeters, uh, we can only do uh, an approximation of about five foot ten, five foot eleven, as the man on the shroud's height. Can you tell how much he weighed by that? You know, uh, I, I'm sure that uh, others who have studied the shroud and done the more uh, anthropological kinds of studies have come up with that. I don't really recall off the top. It's a good question, George. Not one anybody's asked me lately. Huh. But I, I would guess perhaps 160, 175 pounds. That that would be a guess. Interesting. Interesting take about this. Now, the shroud itself, 
Does it travel around? Do people have a chance to see it, or do they keep it in Turin? It's kept in Turin, and it's generally brought out. Historically, it was about four times each century, about every 25 years or so. Uh, in the more, more recent era, uh, starting in 1978, of course, when we examined it, it was again shown in 1998, and in 2000, then in 2010 and 2015. So it's had a lot more exposure in, over the last uh, 40 or so years than historically. The next scheduled public exhibition uh, is at least tentatively set for 2025, which also happens to be the next holy year of the Catholic Church. And so we're all anticipating that about a year before they, uh, before the actual exhibition of the Shroud, <clears throat> The folks in Turin will put on their website a reservation form. It doesn't cost anything to go uh, to see the Shroud, uh, but they do require a reservation. You can now do that online. And so uh, they tell you, don't show up early, show up at the time you've selected. And the lines, which back in 1978 were as long as 10 hours before you got in to see the Shroud, 100,000 or more people lined up, queued up to, to see it. Now it's 15 to 20 minutes, maybe on the weekends about an hour. So it's much more efficient because of the Internet and the opportunity for people to make reservations. We expect that, uh, that website to go online about a year before the actual next public exhibition. Wasn't a small piece of it, the carbon-dated Debiri, but there's some controversy over whether some pollen may have gotten on it or something like that? Well, the controversy, certainly, there was a radiocarbon dating done in 1988, and three laboratories were chosen to do so, uh, Zurich in Switzerland, Oxford in England, and Arizona here in the U.S. Uh, and those three labs uh, were each given a small piece. One little piece was cut from one corner of the cloth, divided in half, one half set aside, the other half divided into thirds by weight, and given to the three laboratories. Uh, they came up with a date range of 1260 to 1390, saying that it's impossible for the shroud to be any older than 1260. Um, of course, those of us who had been studying the shroud knew that there was strong evidence, historic, uh, historical evidence, in the historical record, showing the evidence of the shroud existing well before the earliest date given by the carbon dating. But for many years, that, you know, the whole world just sort of accepted, well, can't be old enough, so it mustn't be real. It wasn't until about 12 years later, around 2000, uh, that a theory was proposed uh, stating that there was nothing wrong with the carbon dating, only the choice of a single sample from that corner uh, turns out that that sample was anomalous, that apparently there was cotton interwoven, which is, by the way, forbidden by Jewish law, uh, mm -hmm. mixing of the kinds, it's called. And so that date, uh, there are now three papers in the peer-reviewed literature challenging the radiocarbon dating. Uh, the first two came out, one in 2005, then in 2008. And most recently, just, just a few weeks ago, a third paper came out. Now, interestingly enough, George, for the 27 years after the radiocarbon dating, the three laboratories refused to release the raw data. Why? Uh, well, that was what we were wondering. Why? Well, uh, in 2017, an Italian researcher, Tristan Casabianca, using the Freedom of Information Act in England, uh, went to the British Museum and literally forced them to release the data. The reason the British Museum had it was that the 
uh, chief researcher at the British Museum at the time, Michael Tite, was uh, appointed as supervisor over the three labs to make sure everything was done correctly. Ironically, as soon as the radiocarbon dating results came out, a million pounds was uh, anonymously donated to the Oxford lab, and Dr. Michael Tite left the British Museum and took a permanent chair at Oxford. That didn't look so good. Well, anyway, in 2017, using the Freedom of Information Act, the British Museum ultimately released the raw data, and a new paper came out just a few weeks ago. We'll be featuring it in our next update on Shroud.com on June 3rd or maybe the 4th. Um, And that paper further supports the questionable uh, content of the single sample chosen for dating. So there's now a third peer-reviewed article Perfect. that challenges the radiocarbon dating in the peer-reviewed literature. Barry, is the image like a negative, a photographic negative? It is. The, the lights and darks of the image on the shroud are the reverse of what we look at. You know, we're used to seeing light highlights and yeah. dark shadows. And the image on the shroud is, in fact, the inverse of that. Uh, now, being a, an old-school analog photographer, I spent many, many years in the darkroom And when I first looked at the actual shroud, I could immediately see that what was on that cloth had the appearance of a photo negative to me. Now, I don't want to imply that the shroud was made photographically because there was no silver, which would have been the light-sensitive material necessary for photography. Uh, There was no silver found anywhere on that cloth. And it's not a painting. And it's not a painting. You know, our team in 78 went there to answer the single question, how is the image formed? And we were unable to answer that. We, we were able to come back and tell you what it's not. It's not a painting. It's not a scorch, and it's not a photograph. Those were the three kind of uh, common suggestions for what might have formed the image. So we can tell you it's not any of those, but we don't know of a mechanism that can create an image with those chemical and physical properties to this day. And in all the attempts in the last 40 or so years to duplicate the shroud, Many by people using one of my photographs of the shroud as a basis for their work, no one has ever come close to matching all of the chemical and physical properties of the shroud's image. Several years ago, CNN did a documentary basically yeah. called Finding Jesus, yeah. and they highlighted the shroud. What were their conclusions, Barry? Well, uh, you know, I, I hate to say it, but uh, I've pretty much given up on television documentaries about the shroud. And, George, I've appeared in about 20 of them. I know, yeah. <laughs> And, you know, I, I can only recommend two after all that. And, and so I, I was not very happy with that particular documentary because they dug out some very visual things that had long before been proven erroneous, one of them being the theory of a gentleman named Nicholas Allen, a South African art historian, who claims that the shroud was made photographically. And ironically, he said that uh, they used silver, and then they removed all the silver uh, and fixed the image using the, the man's urine. <laughs> so oh, effectively, uh, Nicholas Allen said they created the Shroud of Urine, I guess. Uh, at any rate, <laughs> the frustration is this. There is only one property of the Shroud's image that is similar to a photograph, and that's the lights and dark reversal that we've already mentioned. Uh, but every other aspect of that image is unlike any other photograph that I've ever seen, and I've seen quite a few in my almost 50-year career. Probably the most unique property of the image, the, imp- the property of the image that hooked me 
when they asked me to join the team, that the property that ultimately sort of prompted me to actually join that team is the fact that there's spatial or depth information or topographic information, often referred to as 3D information, encoded into the lights and darks of the shroud's image. And that's something that no one has been able to duplicate, and there's no simple solution to how an image might form that way. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.